Hey, twos and threes. Thanks for gathering with us. I'll just re-intro that. <laughs> hey, all. Um, welcome to Tour 3, Gra- three Gathered. Uh, Tour we'll 3 to, Gathered. We'll have to do that again, won't we? You know, because you, you messed it up, eh? You know? I maybe, did. I maybe, did. maybe try and say the say the one, you know? Say the <laughs> Hey, all. Welcome to Tour 3 Gathered. Two or Three Gathered is a series of conversations with Christian brothers and sisters concerning their efforts and contributions to the kingdom vocationally, their stories and testimonies of God's sovereignty and grace, and an opportunity to tackle the relevant issues the church faces in the 21st century. In this, we seek to equip the saints by networking within the body, starting a conversation around often taboo subjects, and seeking to develop unity across Christian denominations and traditions by starting conversation on worthy topics. We want to educate the wider body of Christ by asking these experts and people of wisdom across multiple fields on the hot button subjects, questions, and sophisticated questions that we believe there are answers for in Christ church, but that there is not necessarily access to. It is our heart that Christ himself would be in our midst as we converse about things we believe he himself is very interested in. Hey, Caleb. Good to see you, bro. Hey, Jared. How are you? Pretty good, man. Um, I'm loving this, you know, being a teacher thing because I get one more glorious week of uh, being off. Nice. Uh, I I feel like, you know, a bit of a jerk being like, oh, I've got to go back to work, going back to shaping young minds. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I can't say I know what that's like having been unemployed for the last ages. So <laughs> I, I don't know what time off feels like. You know, I'm just spending yeah. all this time, you know, doing nothing. Well, because like God gave you a word to to be unemployed. Eh? Like you know, you're you're just being faithful to to like. Mm, a I've, I've, I've taken taken a vow of um of unemployment. <laughs> <laughs> Through monastic, if you bro. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. what what kind of holiness is it producing in you uh, um basically i've found that i can just uh quote anything from richard raw on command um that's how productive this time has been um crisis in your unemployment yeah uh yeah and <laughs> in, in this microphone and, <laughs> <laughs> and that table uh yeah <laughs> Yep, bro, bro, you're telling me before. I love, <laughs> I love that, bro. You're telling yeah. me before the podcast. Um, your dear daughter, she's uh, she's going through one of her leaps, as the, the that beautiful app, the Wonder Weeks, puts it right. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um. So, she's six months old now, and yeah, it, it, it's it's getting getting fun. Um, mm. she's crawling and teething and screaming and it's funny because we have a uh there's a baby living next door just about maybe about 14 16 months old somewhere but somewhere around that age Mm. and uh, she is often quite loud and uh we always used to joke being like how baby's so much better as a joke (laughs) and um, i just uh I, I just said to Joanna today, uh, yep, 
she's given the baby next door a run for her money now. <laughs> uh, next door seems a bit chill. Yeah. It's a good check on your humility with stuff like that, eh? Like mm-hmm. when my daughter, like uh, Felicity, um, she's 18 months now and she's doing like a sit down protest in the middle of a mall. It's like, you know, <laughs> I love when you get the parent that goes past, the grandparent goes past and they have just like this knowing nod. It's like, yeah, you know, hang in there. You're doing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, teething, yeah. man. Well, now, now oh. speaking of uh, sit down protests, um, <laughs> And that's probably nice. an appropriate segue. <laughs> nice. Um, no, no, go on. <laughs> um, yeah, bro. Like, because uh, I'm, I'm bringing the topic today. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Not, I suppose. I am bringing the topic today. Um, and this is like, it's a pretty important one. But I also mm-hmm. know because of our the political climate and culture it's also a bit of a it's a controversial one and it's a hard one to talk about without uh people jumping on or talking about cancelling or uh getting you know very i would say authentically and sincerely you know uh offended um Feelings aren't always an indication of truth, but we are definitely sympathetic towards uh, all the feelings in the mix of this around some very complex issues. Um, Yeah, basically, you know, we want to talk a little bit about uh, the Black Lives Matters movement in relation to something that happened to, you know, I would say a mutual friend of ours um, by extension a little while back and uh, also by extension to the Black Lives Matter movement. We want to talk a little bit about um, critical theory and cultural Marxism because they're not unrelated to this discussion. Um, Hmm. hmm. Yeah. um, So I guess getting into this, uh, into this topic uh, today, I guess first question would be what really motivated you to, um, bring this up as a topic for us to discuss yeah bro um so we have a uh this mutual friend Mm. last year um obviously 2020 what a nuts year for everyone like crazy in so many respects right Mm -hmm. um and i may get the chronology like the timing of this a little bit wrong but basically um new zealand had uh two lockdowns essentially um we were very blessed to kind of manage the the covid crisis right well um credit to our government in the crisis i think they in that respect they did a pretty good job um but uh yeah basically i always forget the timing exactly of when it happened and you know may clarify that later maybe in comments or such but two lockdowns auckland particularly where we are both from um one of our New Zealand's major cities, um, had a second lockdown uh, of a much shorter time, but basically in a round to some community transmission cases. And here's the unclarity. Around one of those times, there was a organization of a Black Lives Matter protest in New Zealand. Um, now, this friend of ours um, attended this particular rally and had a intention of engaging in sincere conversation with people and presenting a, another perspective, um, which I think is sincere, I think is like heartfelt. 
I think the mistake that he made, and this is the thing that kind of uh, caused a lot of chaos afterwards, is that he went along wearing a MAGA hat. For those of you who don't know, I'm sure most do. Uh, that is a Make America Great Again hat. Um, it has been, that symbol has been uh, associated with Donald Trump's campaign, his 2016 campaign for presidency in the United States, um, mm. with Ronald Reagan's campaign in the 1980s. And uh, some people have made connections with that hat to uh, racism, which I, I always think like, I've, I've done a little bit of research into it. Like, um, I think the link is a little bit spurious, but the idea is that essentially when you're talking about making America great again, you're talking about returning to a previous point of America's history and perhaps a point where some benefited more than others and perhaps those others on top benefited from those in who were being oppressed, those on the bottom. So people have actually found that synonymous with racism as a result. But uh, he goes along wearing this uh, particular hat and... Uh, people get very vocal about him wearing this particular hat at this particular rally, this uh, sit-down protest, as you put it. Um, mm. And some video footage that he captured, because he was actually starting to you know, create a bit of a social media presence at that time around like uh, you know, topics of faith and topics of culture. He filmed this particular reaction. Someone grasped the hat off him, burned it in front of him. You know, quite a, you know, quite a, like a borderline assault kind of act, but... Mm. I would say my take on that, it's, you know, maybe the heart of actually wanting to have heartfelt conversation with people, heartfelt, sincere, good, wearing that particular symbol and what it's come to be associated with to that kind of uh, occasion. It's pretty dumb. I thought, um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it was wise. Um, yeah. What was your take on all that, man? So, yeah, I, I'll I'll start with that. What what you just echoing what you just said that probably wasn't the wisest thing, and uh, mm. that does make me question at times. It, it did make me question at the beginning mm. whether or not his desire for peaceful discussion and fruitful discussion was actually genuine. Yes, because in such a left-leaning country like New Zealand, especially in Auckland City, um, going to, of all things, a Black Lives Matter protest with a Trump-supporting um, apparel, mm. like say, not the wisest move. Mm. Um, but having watched and read some of the information that Ethan has put out there, um, both reflecting on the situation and semi-related uh posts of his via video or uh podcast or whatever um mm. he seems to be genuine in his desire to have discussion around this conversation mm. um it, it, it seems like it may not be genuine but we we can't entirely judge his heart uh we can't tell what that is but he does seem to be welcoming that discussion um quite freely well i saw the i actually saw on his facebook um the apology that he posted and i thought it was mm. sincere it was public so you know anyone could comment on it and uh there's a real mix eh? there's some real vile stuff yeah yeah um there's some real vile stuff you know um there was some real you know like 
not you know mean but like heated obviously and offended you know kind of comments and there were people who kind of came out in support of him on the back of what he was actually saying um and then he insulated for a while like um he actually yeah he removed himself off social media for a while um like yeah, I kinda... he, he had received threats um yes. yeah, threats threats of violence mm. towards him and his family mm. so yeah that, that which is the opposite side of things which is much worse than what he did in my opinion mm, 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 mm. some people may justify that by equating what he did with a threat of violence against uh, black people or, or marginalized people in general but mm. i think that's a bit of a rubbish argument to be honest mm. what's well, like I, i've thought about it in terms of like i think i've said this to you you know off cast before <laughs> um you know, you think about, say, like in the uh, Eastern cultures, they have this particular symbol that actually represents auspiciousness and uh, luck for future endeavors. And it's mm-hmm. used in Hinduism, and it's used in Buddhist and uh, uh, Jainism, and uh, basically used in a whole bunch of Eastern uh, countries, particularly in the Hindu religion um, mm-hmm. and wedding. And it's a symbol of divinity and spirituality. Um, yeah. Those who might be aware of what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the swastika. But because before the swastika had any kind of Nazi, Aryan, uh, white supremacy connotations, it used to be actually this uh, the symbol that meant all those things meant prior. Mm. But there is a sense in which actually, if some, if a symbol or symbology is actually co-opted to have a new meaning, it takes on new connotations. Um, so it's like in most western countries i'd even arguably say in some of the eastern world as well if you actually brandish a swastika uh even though um you know the the nazi party actually co-opted that symbol to mean yeah. something new you wear that in a new in different contexts now people don't see that and think like oh that's a symbol meaning you know a lovely idea or a lovely uh a lovely premise they think like you know what are you supporting what are you trying to endorse what are you trying to actually uh you know promote by actually wearing that don't you know what that means and i feel like although i don't see the same kind of potency with something like the make america great again hat although i mean i understand we are in new zealand of course it's a different context somewhere like the states although i understand it's taken on this kind of new meaning and has this kind of like a power in and of itself, all of its own um, very polarized context in somewhere like the States presently. Yeah. Uh, that all said, you know, a symbol does get to a point kind of t- it has a meaning in and of itself that is beyond what you may intend for it to have. And so he might've actually wore, he's saying he's wearing that hat to promote discussion. Any other person where at that protest is seeing that and it's like, that's a symbol of oppression. That's a symbol of racism. That doesn't look like someone I want to engage in meaningful discussion with. Like, just like if you were to go to, you know, an RSA in New Zealand and actually wear a swastika to one of those, like, I don't imagine it would be received warmly, like, because it's a, it's offensive. Yeah. That, that was my take on it anyway. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's a very interesting point. Um, I guess, you being a, a teacher as well, because um, we may or may not have uh, clarified that Ethan 
is uh, professionally a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you as a teacher were put in the same kind of situation um, as he was, mm. what would you do? Because uh, this ended up reflecting uh, a, a lot of people did find out what uh, Ethan did for a career, which school he worked for mm-hmm. and ended up contacting the school and the ministry of education. So if, were you put in the same situation? What would you do? Oh, dude, it's like, because, you know, I was talking to colleagues at the time around, like, that kind of situation and what was happening. Um, Mm. You know, like, one person that really went after him was, um, you know, David Farrier. He's, like, a New Zealand journalist, and he has this um, blog that he keeps called Webworm. Um, And he saw about this, and, like, um, he he saw how this particular situation was being handled and kind of, like, just really dismissed and kind of, I guess, in his opinion, not being given the kind of airtime conversation dialogue it should have. So he, you know, was, you know, in contact with the teacher's council. Um, for those who don't know, the teacher's council is like a, it's a bureaucratic, like regulatory body in New Zealand that seeks to assure the standards of uh, teachers, the standards of like vocational practice in the, in the profession. Anyway, so like he's, he's, he's consulting these higher ups, David Ferrier, and his intent is ironically one of the things that actually uh, Ethan was trying to decry because mi- mixed mm. up in this kind of this uh, BLM and this uh, critical theory and cultural Marxism kind of movement. And we'll unpack those terms because they do need to be qualified later on. Um, mixed up in all this is this idea of cancel culture. And essentially what David Ferrier was trying to do with Ethan was cancel him. Essentially what all those people mailing in and actually contacting the school and trying to get higher ups to, you know, mute him to actually fire him. They were essentially attempting to cancel him. I think it's so, there's an irony to the fact that actually, um, yeah, Ethan was in the situation where he's decrying this kind of culture and that's exactly what was happening to him. But yeah, I mean, I don't know, like I, I say that to kind of qualify, you know, I, I'm talking with, say, a colleague of mine who's saying, like, you know, we know the principle, a lot of Christian schools, by extension, there are a lot of connections across network where people do know people. Um, the colleague is talking about the principle, and it's like, you know, how could you do that to your principal? That'd be such a tough situation to put them in. And I'm not thinking, well, like, as a teacher, you know, is what you do in private and public not separate? Because different professions there is that dichotomy where you actually you know you're not accountable for what you do in your private time but there's a different standard for teachers i think um because that question is it's like if this is what the person does in their leisure time or their private time what are they then doing in the professional capacity what are they teaching Mm -hmm. you know there's the questions of indoctrination come into consequence yeah I, i think like i wouldn't i wouldn't do what ethan did in terms of say the wearing of the the mega hat to a protest i might go to say a protest similarly to show solidarity i do wonder about like the disingenuity of um black lives matter in new zealand and i don't want to say that to be insensitive but i know it's very much an important meaningful movement in a context like america i i'm of the mind that actually maybe more christians should have actually been in attendance with what was happening with ihu Martel. Um, a couple of years back and those are 
those claims to land uh, down in South Auckland. You know, I think that could have actually had a bit a more of a turnout from a Christian presence. And so mm. maybe it's not a matter of actually trying to hop on to something that has less of an application because it's not necessarily our context and maybe having more of a actually what's happening on the ground level in our country, what's directly affecting, you know, those who are oppressed and marginalized in our society. Um, Cause you don't want it to just be about virtue signaling and social justice warrioring. Yeah. Do you like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think what I'm trying to articulate in there is this idea of I would want to be wise and discerning about what kind of protest or rally I would attend and for what reasons. But even when you're there, if you decide to go, you've actually got to be discerning about your conduct. Like, I, mm. I know we were talking with some of the people of our local church around that at the time. I mentioned when we started this uh, recording, this cast, that it was around about the time of the second lock, uh, I think the second or first lockdown when we were coming out of it. And, you know, the question was like, well, a great chance for community transmission is a public rally, right? Are we really wanting ethically, you know, morally as a Christian, is that good practice to then go, let's, even if I actually support this cause, you know, meaningful in some of its uh, advocacy, do I really want to actually, am I loving my brother if I'm actually going to, promote the chance of death by actually transmitting COVID by being in that context. And so there's another level of like, okay, maybe adopt some causes, maybe don't, but also be discerning if you do go there, what are you going to do and what you're not going to do? Um, yeah. I've heard although, stories. You're gone. Although I would, sorry to interject, I would just say that some people would see the, the cause to be greater than the risk of uh, spread of infection um, also keeping in mind that at this point in time the transmission rates were quite severely down quite a lot of people were in the city already mm. um, not to say that I'm justifying it uh, necessarily but uh, that it was justified in the eyes of a lot of those who mm. attended the protests Oh, dude, like, um, I was communicating with someone just like, you know, social media, I think it was something on Facebook. There was around an event. It was either, um, it was either Black Lives Matter protest or some other event around that. Anyway, I was communicating about like the idea of like, um, Hey, risk of transmission, you know, you're saying you would go to this, but you'd stay at home. I was basically, <sighs> I don't know, like, it's not always productive to have, to have discussions and arguments over Facebook. But I was, like, having this conversation. It's like, you know, listen, there's a risk of transmission. You would risk going out, you know, uh, at the risk of people actually uh, contracting. Is that the right word? Contracting COVID? Um, yep. Because of the meaning of the cause. Um, mm -hmm. And it led on to this discussion where, like, you know, basically they use this phrase ACAB, and I'd never heard that before. Um which I know now stands for all cops are bastards. And I'm just like, and you know, how do we get here? Like this whole idea of like all cops are bastards. And like, what does that even mean? It's like that I, I learned afterwards doing a bit of researching, you know, um, the idea of uh, that's linked very closely with the idea of defund the police. Another idea that's linked up to the BLM movement um, or has come to be associated with it. Um, 
Yeah, interesting times. Yeah. Interesting times. Yeah. Uh, interesting that you bring up the defunding the police because that's a growing movement, a growing mm. idea, um, which has a lot of issues. Uh, there, there was a video you recently sent me, um, and I've seen this idea elsewhere. I've, I've discussed it with other people, is, is that police, whether they be, whether the system is uh, inherently racist or not, you can put that argument aside uh, mm. for this specific um, point. Uh, they are often overworked uh, in the States, often working long 12-hour shifts, not hugely paid, especially in uh, high-crime areas. Um, mm. They're not very well reimbursed for risking their lives. Um and they definitely are doing so um whether the intention be pure or not um the the levels of stress are extremely high in a job like that mm -hmm. um i've i've worked in a role where my stress levels are extremely high um for fear or concern of assault uh in in, in the prison system mm. um and I wasn't even concerned that I would be killed. Uh, I, I didn't, I never had to deal with people with guns. Uh, so that that's a whole nother level and uh, defunding police, I think would uh, only raise that uh, a whole lot more and would make police perform a whole lot less. Um, so I think on that, for that reason alone, it's, it's a dangerous idea to to go about because most of those uh, proposing defund the police, even mm. though they would necessarily would probably agree with me there, mm. um, would say no. But we need to rebuild it from the ground up. But none of them, as far as I've seen, have offered a sustainable or a um, I guess a, a worthy alternative. Yes. Um, that would really yeah that that would really replace that mm -hmm. well yeah like i mean i might uh i might cite these some of these uh more specific statistics later on um that i can bring to bear on this but something i did come across um that kind of actually in terms of an idea let me go back a couple of steps and qualify this one of the key ideas that's associated with uh, defund the police is this idea that actually disproportionately um, or always that there are instances of uh, racism um, in terms of racial profiling with uh, African-American youths um, being targeted by police. And like, uh, there are some numbers that I think like, uh, again, I can cite here, but I'll link, uh, the wider article and I'll link in description afterwards. Um, according to some 2009 data, there's nearly 330 million people in the United States. Um, there are 670,000, uh, a little more than 670,000 full-time police officers in the United States out of a total of 900,000 sworn law enforcement officers. Approximately 2.1 police officers per thousand people. Um, they are less than 0.21% of the population. 
and offices come into contact with 17% of the population annually. And that means out of 55,800,880 contacts, that's contact meaning any time a police officer interacts with a policeman, uh, which at the, last, at the time of the last report led to 26,000 excessive force complaints against officers. That's only 0.047% of those contacts. That's only 8% of those complaints were sustained. And that's uh, 2,080 out of 53, over you know, 53 million uh, contacts or 0.039%. So like you're talking about like really minuscule numbers and you're talking about like instances of uh, corruption, police brutality, and then within those subsets, you know, actually having instances of, oh, this was an instance of racial profiling. Now there's an argument to be made for, you know, well, what about the instances that are unreported? What about the instances that aren't written down? I think that actually has, it's a very meritous argument because one particular link I came across is um, this idea that there was a report in, I want to say the early 2000s, where they were looking into uh, instances of police, you know, corruption, excessive use of force, basically looking um, misconduct. And mm. um, of all the departments in the States, only 5% actually offered up their stats for the Department of Justice actually read them. That means that 95% of those departments didn't offer up that information. And so, like, of course, that's going to skew statistics and got, not give you the full picture. Yeah. Um, you know, statistics is, it can be a very accurate science, but it can also be used very persuasively to lie, you know, mm. like the idea that, you know, um, 85% of statistics are made up on the spot, like that statistic. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah, go on. What were you going to say, man? Well, yeah, it, it just, um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure if the, the segue will, uh, click with everyone, but what I'm reminded of is, um, I guess the on the side of uh, anti-corruption that there's a whole lot of um, lobbying and mm. uh, buy-offs that happen in the states, more particularly uh, in sheriff counties, mm. um, because so if you go into most major cities uh, in the states, they'll have a police force like the LAPD the Chicago PD, the um, new, the NYPD, mm. they're all run, though they're, they're run by the city, but they also have uh, sheriff counties, which are running a little bit of a different, um, different regard uh, mm. because sheriffs who run their county, they are democratically elected. And okay. uh, I remember learning a little bit about this when I watched um, and th this documentary inspired me to read up a little bit more about it later. Mm. Um, on Amazon Prime, there's a, a documentary, What Happened in Vegas. Um, mm. And it's following several stories of um, excessive force and, uh, well, more than excessive force, police mm. uh, shootings and killings of people that were unreasonable shootings. Um, and how the corruption goes to the top because uh, mm. typically in Vegas what happens is 
you know, you have a lot of rich casino owners who don't want the police to step on their toes. So they will give funding to um, uh, potential sheriffs who will turn a blind eye. And um, yeah, for many years, the the sheriff's department has been quite corrupt and Mm publicly you can find out a whole lot of things wrong with the current sheriff and deputy mm. sheriff and uh, uh, cock-ups that they've had mm. publicly or in mm. private that have come uh, come out in public and have just kind of been swept under the rug um, mm. with big money. And there are a few cops within, well, quite a lot of cops within the um, Vegas police department who mm. want to turn things around, but, are uh, just fighting a losing battle. Well, like, like here's where I want to qualify the disingenuity, right? Um, mm. Like, you take a movement like Black Lives Matter and apply it to a New Zealand context. There are parallels which you think, yes, this needs to be given voice and this is important, like, uh, mm. you know, institutional racism, which I'll qualify in a second. You know, yeah, that has some basis uh, in new zealand you know we need to go back to you know treaty of waitangi claims and we need to talk about like actually um you know maori students in schools and like the the disqualification of Tadeo, you know that almost succeeded you know like cumulatively they actually got wiped out as a language um the speaking of maori in new zealand up until the 1970s and the revival of uh you know, Māori culture and particularly the spoken Māori language at that time. Anyway, I, I think there's a certain kind of disingenuity because you look at a, a context like America and there are 50 states and those states all have their own laws about how they actually manage their own police departments. Yes, mm. there is a uniformity towards actually how the law is actually exercised, but there's a lot of disparity and a lot of uh, disconnection. I mean, one positive result i heard, uh, read about is that um in dallas so in texas they were trialing um de- they were training being very specific about doing de-escalation techniques worked mm-hmm. into actually how you handle instances that would otherwise include excessive force and they had like you know milestone breaking like a record uh decreases in the Mm. amount of instances that there were excessive force used and um complaints about excessive force um just across the board um so in in that sense like yeah like you know there are going to be some success stories in some places that are doing some things better if we talk Mm. about one state that's one state in like 49 you know there's like a lot of other instances and then when we talk about new zealand by comparison you know, uh, we had, uh, you know, my dad on last uh, last week, you know, in a podcast actually talking about, um, and amongst other things, this idea that New Zealand runs a pretty clean game here by and large. Mm. And we're talking about comparing a country of 5 million people that is like the size of like one large city in America, like to have a pretty good track record of lack of corruption in particularly with regards to say it's police force to then actually then import that idea and say, yes, we need to defund the police here in New Zealand. Like, I just don't think that has uh, transferability. That's just like easy yeah. and accessible and just, you know, automatically can be applied to any and every context, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, one would, um, I, I, I 
do see some people bringing up a response to that being that there does appear to be certain levels of racism within our own police force, mm-hmm. uh, at least according to certain statistics, some of mm-hmm. which can be questioned, um, but not all of them can be and, and are quite confronting. Mm-hmm. Um, and these statistics show that if, uh, if your average, um, if you take your average white man and your average Maori man, and they both have a very similar criminal uh, history, and they both commit the same crime, the Maori man is two times more likely to be stopped or pulled over or questioned by police, Mm. four times more likely to be arrested or detained. I think it's six or eight times more likely to be uh, charged Mm. with a criminal offense and 10 times more likely to be uh, prosecuted and convicted for the crime. Mm. Now, the, 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 um, of those statistics, the one that I would call into question personally is that they are two times more likely to be stopped by police on the street. Mm. Now, when you think about this, this is by sight, uh, they don't know who the person is. They don't know their um, their ethnic background. Mm. They may be Maori. They may be Pacific Island. They may be white, but white Maori. Uh, mm. And you you may not have it in the system that they are Maori until they tick that in the ethnic mm. uh, ethnic box. Mm. Uh, so at that point, do you know if they're more likely to be, how, how do we know if they're more likely to be stopped? But the other points still stand by the time that they've been given a charge or had their ID cited, uh, mm. so on and so forth. There is a higher chance of them being charged and convicted and going to prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it appears to be uh, that their races is potentially a contributing factor to this. And um, that's a big thing that a a lot of people within law enforcement are even trying to change, but uh, still having trouble with. Mm -hmm. Well, like, I think that's like, so, I mean, like, you know, I talked a little bit about, say that instance for um, the argument of institutional racism, of systemic racism needing to be accounted for. Um, I mm. think that's something where critical theory may be actually pinpointing something that's of some uh, basis. Like I'm, yeah. like I, I'm, I'm going to continue to explore that and research that because it's like I'm not so conservative leaning that I'm going to say like no, there is no instances of systemic racism at all. Yeah. Like, um, but neither am I willing to say that like uh, to endorse everything that say CRT critical race theory and critical theory by extension would say right like um thinking about like the MAGA hat for example right and the link of MAGA to systemic oppression um you know we're referring to making when we say make America great again we're returning we're wanting a return to an era where people were oppressed to preserve that status quo right when there were Jim Crow laws of of consequence and that are blood quantum was actually thought of like uh this idea that actually 
you are half African-American or a quarter African-American or the, the rule of the one drop rule. If you have one African-American um, member of your family tree, um, even if it's back several generations, that you are African-American, you are Negro by default. Or, mm. um, you know, you have the separate but equal legal doctrine that was taught. This idea mm. that people are equal, but there still has to be segregation. And segregation was actually held... Um, upheld by the Supreme Court um, as being, yeah, they still have equality, but, you know, this is still justifiable under the law. And, like, segregation being allowed um, throughout the, the early 20th century, you know, 100 years after the Civil War has even ended over the whole, you know, race relations. Um, like, it's, it's no wonder that actually we had it actually leading to the Civil Rights Act you look at an instance like this again in America, you can see there's certainly a case to be made for institutional racism. Um, and to the extent that this relates to the American politics, like I don't have skin in that game. Right. Um, but I think here's our segue to critical theory, perhaps, right? Like to the degree that actually people make these connections to Christian worldview somehow that the Christian gospel is a weapon of oppression. It's a product of Western colonialization it's a it's a construct you know this is where this doesn't make sense in my estimation to then say you know yep definitely for the idea that racism is bad it's evil it's not of god needs to be done with but that actually christian gospel is something that then advances racism like that's where something's going to skew and it's not it doesn't make sense yeah yeah definitely um and i i think we're with often people do connect um ideologically christianity to racism and systemic racism and in some ways there there is an historic argument um a, a validity to the argument historically however it can be quite easily uh, i guess uh rebutted by the idea that for example in the united states um when slaves were given bibles by slave owners mm. they were heavily heavily edited bibles that had a whole lot uh removed a whole mm. lot of uh, especially the um especially the epistles mm -hmm. um, and significant portions of the gospels had been removed mm. um so it kind of goes to show that not only had people decontextualize the bible to support their racism they mm -hmm, had mm -hmm. worse than cherry picked it they had cut out chunks that forbid their actions and that mm -hmm, say that mm -hmm. these kind of these kind of atrocities have no place within christendom mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and in fact christianity goes heavily against the idea of uh treating one differently because of their race it, it, mm. it's quite a anyone who just who does entry-level theology will find out that um that there's no way to justify that um with proper uh proper analysis of uh the context of the bible well i mean i mean that's my that's my thinking right like it's to say that my jesus our jesus's gospel was a weapon of colonization like an institution of systemic racism like mm. sorry not sorry to offend 
Well, that's that's mm. insulting to my savior. Like he's he's the servant king who made all people, and in mm. whose unity there is both unity and diversity. You know, there's a welcoming in the scriptures of every tongue and creed and race and nation. Revelation, um, the book of Revelation has a vision of, you know, uh, all being one in Christ. Um, I think of uh, Colossians three verse eleven. Um, where Paul's talking about that kind of unity here, there is no Gentile or Jew circumcised or uncircumcised barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Mm. Like I, like I, I really want to like, you know, someone who actually is advocating the idea that Christianity is, is inherently racism. Like I want to implore with those people to just like repent of impugning, his honor because christ yeah. loves you know the racist that that's controversial right but he mm. loves the oppressed as well he loves the oppressor and the oppressed he loves all people and he provided mm. that substitutionary atonement so that his kingdom would usher in a reign where there's no more pain no more sin no more death no more racism like black lives certainly matter to him um yeah. but i see these efforts you know, made by this movement and the theories that kind of underpin it, they're seeking to destroy. They're not seeking to build. They're not seeking to reform. And yeah, that that's, that's problematic as I see it. Like, you know, uh, time definitely will be a test to actually see, to evaluate the worthiness of the ideals that are espoused by this movement. But I think even on the surface, you've got to look for something that's actually promoting constructive and, unity and actually let's promote civil discussion let's get to the core of this let's actually uh reconcile but you're not seeing that in the likes of cancel culture you're not seeing that in the likes of oh, i don't know defund the police you're not seeing that in the likes of critical theory and i think it's a really worrying doctrine that's being espoused as a result to to the degree that i think i'm I'm not surprised that Christians are having this kind of like crisis of thought, um, this crisis of conviction where they're saying, well, I do believe black lives matter, but I'm not sure I'm supporting everything that this movement is standing for. Like, yeah, it, it's tough. Hey, tough times. Yeah. And, and that's why um, uh, I can never remember his actual name. There's a YouTuber that I follow. His mm. uh, YouTube channel is what do you meme? Oh, Jason McRae, uh, yeah. Yeah, and he, he an African-American um, Christian, was mm. speaking to these matters, saying, I do believe Black Lives Matter, and I do believe Black people are um, unfairly marginalized within uh, the United States. Mm. Um, and there is a, a sense of... Um, a, a sense of desperation... And, and urgency coming from this movement. However, I cannot, as a peaceful, uh, peace-promoting Christian, cannot support the actions and uh, the movement of BLM mm. uh, because there, there has tended to be far too much violence associated with that movement. Mm. And um, so he started saying, well, I'm going to release a line of merch that will... Uh, that will be my stand of solidarity mm. with this uh, with this movement, but they will say Black Lives Matter to Jesus, um, 
and uh, I think yeah he, he started trying to popularize the idea of Black Lives Matter to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Another reason for his um, for his I, I guess adoption of this idea was not only that uh, BLM is problematic as an organization, but is also fruitless without the gospel. Uh, because uh, from a Christian perspective, I mean, how else, What what's the point really if it's not glorifying Jesus, if it's not coming to a point in which it is about the gospel, mm-hmm. what's the point in all these good works? Uh, none. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, but considering what you're saying you touch you know talking about cancel culture has come up in this conversation Mm. um what what do you think has spurred on a lot of this or do you think it's something that started coming earlier and is tied in very well with uh blm movements and the like yeah well i mean like there's there's two things there and i think they both need appropriate explanation like I think mm. uh, I'm thinking of myself, you know, grappling with these thoughts and seeking to articulate them. I'm thinking of us like having conversation and trying to get a better grasp on this. I'm thinking of the listeners listening to this. So I'll, I'll, I'll take that in two ways. I'll look to speak a little bit to cancel culture first specifically, and then yeah. more widely talk to critical theory and cultural Marxism by extension, maybe the other way around because uh, there is a, there is a trajectory of that ideology. So like, mm. as I have uh, seemed to see, um, cancel culture or- originated um, as kind of like a subculture from the Black Lives Matters wider movement. And you had um, African-American women wanting to have voice against their oppressors, say like in the workplace where there's sexual assault, but you know, it's it's the white male patriarchy that actually doesn't give voice to that woman. Like, um, you know, I'm thinking of like the Me Too movement that gave gained some traction a couple of years ago, right? That probably has some yeah. relevance there. Um, and originally, I would say that's a good thing. Like, you know, if there are people in authority that are actually doing evil acts, doing wicked things, and then they need to be held account for the things that they're doing, you know, mm. the fact that actually people are in oppressed states of being that they don't have uh, access to an audience or they don't have um, the scales of justice actually weighing in their favor. They have a system that actually silences them by default. I think actually a person who is using their position to actually abuse people, um, that's, it's very biblical that they should be given account. Um, a verse I came across was like Proverbs 31 verse 8. Proverbs 31 verse 8 has this idea of speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all those who are destitute. You know, all throughout Proverbs, all throughout the wisdom literature of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, um, there is this idea of actually God is seeking to advocate for those uh, who are lesser, who don't have access to the same opportunities or powers or responsibility. Like he he is for all people, right? But he's also expecting that those people who have power and influence, that they are to be accountable for how they steward those roles and how they steward those responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah. But now what cancel culture has uh, become 
And I wonder about an irony, like uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because we're in such a capitalistic society. Now cancel culture has become about like social, social justice warriors, virtue signaling about what people feel entitled to in their products. Like an otherwise, I would say arguably a good thing in, in its origins, seeking to hold people accountable has become about like, uh, oh, someone has done something that I don't in some small way agree with or doesn't fit the narrative of what is actually politically correct and uh, mm. ideal, doesn't fit the narrative of what is politically correct and actually acceptable, um, that mm. person no longer has a voice. I'm, say like in a capitalist society, once upon a time it used to be like, if I don't like what someone stands for or what they agree with, like... Uh, I'll stop buying their product, right? Yeah. Now it's like, you know, oh, I don't like their product. I'm going to stop buying their product. And plus I'm going to stop everyone else from actually consuming their goods and services. It must match um, our, the group's identity of moral and virtue expectations. Like I think about, you know, Jenna Marbles in, you know, in 2019 last year, you know, by and large, a pretty wholesome YouTuber. She's just doing vlogs about like, you know, cooking meals with her longtime partner and like her dogs and like their life and, you know, doing stupid, like uh, beauty makeovers and having a laugh at herself in a self-deprecating way, but in a way that's authentic and engaging and people yeah. trawled up like content years ago where she did blackface in some of her material. And um, she, she even like, you know, had stated prior to what happened where she was canceled where she said, I don't stand by this anymore. I actually made them private a long time ago because I don't actually think that this is acceptable anymore. I wouldn't do blackface again. And to the extent that she actually said all that, people still actually brought all this content up. It's like, you should have never done it. You know, you should have never actually been associated with this. Like, how dare you um, have yeah. made a mistake ever? <laughs> like, yeah. And, and <laughs> it's like, there, there's no grace in that. Like, it, it's an odd thing listening to the liturgist podcast like mike gunga made this connection between actually there's a weird connection between cancel culture and purity culture because in the church yeah. we used to like kind of shame people it's like oh you've made a mistake once you know maybe to do with lust or in terms of like a you know personal piety and sin shame you know ostracize excommunicate and yeah ironically people are actually don't want to have anything to do with the church and not associate it with it there's the same kind of replication of that dynamic in cancel culture where it's like, you don't fit the narrative, shame, close, mute, don't give a voice. Like Jenna Marbles yeah. was like, she was so broken. Like I saw her apology video. I'm not sure if you did too, but like, you know, wanting to give account of her actions, you know, feeling like she's actually, she shouldn't have done it in the first place. Um, but it's like, people aren't even given the space to grow anymore or to actually change their opinions. Like, I would yeah. hope if we put out a podcast, say on this topic, and then a couple of years down the track, we actually change some of our opinions on this and we say that and we actually acknowledge it, people would be like, oh, okay, you know, well, I respect that. You know, we're all humans, we're all growing, you know, especially as it relates to the gospel, we're, we're growing in our understanding, hopefully and with humility about who Christ is and how that informs all of life. But then yeah. it's like, no, you said something once, you know, 10 years ago, that's um, morally reprehensible in our view therefore mm. you're not allowed a platform anymore like 
there, there's there's something in there in the cancel culture which seems like control of others feels empowering we feel like we're doing something right but it's in the mm. wrong way right like it's easier to just actually control what people can and can't do it's harder to actually give people grace and room to change to grow to actually develop over time and yeah i heard a quote recently this idea of like if we don't find healthy ways to agree to have civil discussion on points of difference we will eventually find profoundly unhealthy ways to disagree that was also mentioned on the litigious podcast yeah if we don't mm. find healthy ways to agree we will find profoundly unhealthy ways to disagree yeah and yeah i think like we've got to we've we've got to actually find these ways to actually have civil discussion on some of these ideas I, I just wonder if like because we're in a capitalistic culture it's so funny that we're actually expecting of our brands of our products to imbibe this message you know we're mm. talking about the whole idea recently like um you know why is Nike or why is Wendy, you know, making a Black Lives Matter like post? It's like just just tell me a shoe, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, especially given the history of Nike's uh, exploitation, oh, yeah, of uh, underprivileged workers mm. worldwide. Um, you know, it, it's kind of a bit of a case of a log in one's eye. Mm. Mm. Um, but interestingly, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the whole dynamic of us living in a capitalistic society. I was having a discussion with someone recently about this um, in regards to the social media platform Parler, mm. uh, which claims itself to be the the free speech um, promoting social media platform. Uh, it was used by a lot of people who were organizing the capitol hill storming um and because of that tech giants like google and apple and amazon basically teamed together to shut it down uh, on, and on the same day google and apple removed it from their app stores mm. uh, and then a day or so later uh amazon remove them from their uh from their server services uh mm -hmm. so they had no way to operate um now a lot of people uh, i was talking to a friend about this who said this is not a free speech issue because these are private companies uh they they have they have the ability and and the right to do this to deny anyone service um and i said i agree just like how we're a cake maker has uh, <laughs> has the the right to deny a couple uh, with whom's marriage they do not agree with uh, mm. to buy their cakes. Mm -hmm. um, but the difference here is these groups: Apple, Google, Amazon. They have a monopoly yes. on tech and on social media. Yes, uh, Facebook and Twitter together as well um they they all seem to be in the same relatively same camp politically mm. um and they all seem to be working together in this regard at least mm. uh in, in terms of shutting down parlor and trying to cancel that and again as private groups they are entitled to work together to do this uh, if they have a co common goal 
mm. all power to them to do that. But I wouldn't, well, not all power to them because they have this monopoly that a lot of them have gained very uh, unethically. Um, and one could also question the, I guess, hypocrisy of people like um, Jack Dorsey, who is the CEO of Twitter. He, yes. for example, um, after Colin Kaepernick um, tweeted that BLM riots, violent riots, are necessary and should be happening. Uh, he's, Colin he's, the, Kaepern- yeah. he's the NFL player who took a knee, took a knee in yeah. 2014. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Yeah, which I, 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 I think that's a great thing to do if yes. that's what, what you are behind. Hmm. Again, that's freedom of speech um, or not to speak. Uh, he was exercising his First Amendment right in doing so, and it mm. was also covered by the UN uh, basic mm. human right of free speech. Mm. Uh, but when he endorsed violence, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, funded him several million dollars to his uh, campaign, raising money for BLM-related groups. Right. Whereas Jack Dorsey was, uh, uh, as soon as Parler got shut down, was tweeting about how amazing it was and how great this is, and um, also is silencing, you know, deleting Trump's Twitter account mm. uh, for supposedly endorsing um, violence inciting. and for yeah. for inciting violence, mm. rather. Sorry. Mm. Um, which shows, well, it's not that he's anti-violence. Mm. It shows that he's not anti-political um, revolution. He is not that political revolution in and of mm. itself is a bad thing, but it shows that he is just fighting for one side and one side alone and mm. is quite hypocritical in his approach. And mm. the same can be said for a lot of other uh, tech giants. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I think we're in an age where I think if capitalism is the enshrined value in capitalism culture, it's it's an interesting, you know, clash of ideals, right? Because it's like a lot of this you know, critical theory, leftist leaning ideology, you know, BLM mixed up and all of that uh, is clashing up against capitalistic culture where, you know, we see hedonism as worshipped. And that those consumed goods and services, we want them to match what we believe and what the narrative actually teaches. And so, like, we see these companies having to take a position and take a platform on actually what they think is the pop the popular culture is saying is right and is wrong, right? You know, we've got malls that are essentially like think about this recently, you go to like a Westfield in Auckland, it's like it's built like a cathedral. <laughs> Most people are spending like their their Sabbath there. It's like even if they have gone to church as well, that's an interesting thing, right? Like it there's something too that I think that speaks to the consciousness or the collective consciousness wanting to find meaning and fulfillment in their leisure time and in their, you know, their vocational time. Um, and it comes back often to what capital is capitalistic, right? But mm. um yeah, I think the cult the can the cancel culture one is an interesting one because it's like, I think there's a human idea there where it's easier to play to our vices than our virtues. Right. 
you know, like I was speaking before, like, you know, it feels empowering to call someone out wrong, right? But I think there's also, there's something we've got to guard against. We don't want to get to the point of self-righteousness where, you know, we're being actively hypocritical and not actually remembering with that same grace. Yes, it's important to call people out on wrong, ourselves included. Therefore, you know, judge not lest you yourself be judged by that same standard, right? Um, Yeah. Mike Gunga spoke of an example, like he's the guy who does uh, the Liturgist podcast. Um, they have a six-year-old Down syndrome daughter. Um, it's a part of like their journey in most recent years is like actually becoming a father to a, a disabled daughter, right? And um, he is in his house. He says, hey, Alexa, play some comedy. And some comedian comes on. Um, and forgive me for the word, like I actually have a disabled sister myself who very near and dear to my heart. Um, but when he starts this comedy cast that comes up, the word that comes up is like, so retards these days. And it's like, Mike Gunga talks about that experience of like, oh, like just feeling kind of deflated. Like, you know, yeah. we're in 2020, people are still using that word. Like, you know, what's that about, you know? Um, and like using it to sell. And so like he talked about his own kind of internal dialogue of like the easy option, a cancel culture option, arguably, like he's saying this is um, I could, you know, mention this guy on twitter at him say hey what's this about mate like you know let's let's have a let's have fever and blast you and like actually ridicule and shame and make it very public yeah. right another way he talked about doing that is like hey man i know you made this joke about this um let me introduce you to my daughter and like send a video of them interacting with her and like actually that's a more positive way but perhaps the harder way and perhaps the more difficult way mm-hmm. of actually endearing someone to your position and point of view um i think cancel culture wants the conflict it wants the sparks like it it doesn't but it's on its terms it's not necessarily open to both sides being heard you know yeah yeah like you said earlier there's the whole idea of people feeling better because they're controlling others and Mm. trying to um virtue signal by saying look at me standing up for the oppressed for the marginalized Mm. um whilst you dirty filthy white straight christian man are um uh being oppressive and Mm -hmm. um because of a mistake you've made Mm -hmm. uh you have to be silenced Mm. and you no longer you you should be Mm deplatformed which is um it on, on on two levels goes heavily against biblical standards you know there's the whole whole virtue signaling going against uh what going against what jesus said about not letting the left hand know what the right hand is doing and um not making a spectacle of one's charity mm. um and then there's the idea of grace and you know someone may have had mistakes in their past they may have fallen short like you mentioned Jenna marbles but mm. we're not showing that grace and forgiveness and acceptance no. uh, she's come a long way and things have changed uh times have changed people are much more aware of what is and what isn't okay to joke about mm-hmm. uh, in a public forum mm-hmm. um or in private either mm. uh, and because of that people's attitudes have changed but some people 
are still trying to, like you say, and like, like you mentioned, uh, my Gungor's earlier story, mm. bring back the, the shame culture. It's just flipped to the other side. It's, it's not the conservatives uh, shaming and cancelling. Now it's the liberals um, shaming and cancelling. Mm. Yeah, that's so it, eh? Like, um, I think, like, it'd, it'd be a good point to now to actually, talking about cancel culture, to actually find the root of that in uh, mm. critical theory. But then before we can talk about that, I think we need to talk a little bit about uh, cultural Marxism. Because I think, like, that will make sense to, like, we're big believers, big endorsers in actually understanding epistemology, our theories mm. of knowing, right? And actually, yeah. epistemology there's often a trajectory of ideology. Like we see that actually people come to believe what they believe, not by accident. Like there's a, you can trace ideas back to roots and kind of uh, seminal moments that actually, yeah, you know, create ideas and ideologies and communities adopting certain ideologies. But yeah, like I think it'd be good to talk a little bit about actually um, classical and then cultural Marxism first and actually how that's led to critical theory by extension. Um, I am prepping for actually us having this conversation. I looked up a little bit to do um, of the material produced by uh, Vody Bochum or Bochum. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Vody Bochum, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like um, he's a reformed preacher in the States. Um, I should say Dr. Vody Bochum. And he's uh, been speaking about these things for, you know, well before actually they were kind of in the popular speak and actually were uh were kind of commonly associated with these ideas and with this with this mm. movement. Um see I actually think with with regards to critical theory, like to the degree that people are taught to think critically and seek truth rather than safe appealing answers, I think that's a good thing. But I think mm. when that becomes about hijacking the narrative so that only one subgroup of opinions is valid. Like that's not consistent with that virtue. That's not consistent with that, that aspiration, I would say. Um, and Dr. Vody Bochum, he, he says talking about cultural Marxism, um, it's kind of, it's kind of not constructive to some degree because people don't associate or what that naturally with BLM. They're asking, it's like, what does, you know, BLM have anything to do? How does that have anything to do with what is classical Marxism? But yeah, I want to spend a bit of time just actually unpacking that and talking about that and then actually tracing the trajectory a little bit. If, if mm. you allow me, friend. Go for it. Um, so he talks about actually how in classical Marxism, and by Marxism, I'm talking about Karl Marx, who was the father of what we would now know today as communism um and it's uh it's various it's just it's a good idea on paper <laughs> well arguably um in classical marxism Karl marx who was a student of uh, hegel himself um he saw history as being in three stages ancient feudal and capitalistic and the uh, the epoch mm. that they found themselves in um, when he was writing was the capitalistic stage and there's a class consciousness where each epoch contained internal contradictions that led to struggle between groups and the the burgeoning of the next phase 
And one of his other ideas was this idea of historical determinism, that capitalism would eventually fall, that the workers of this world would unite and that there would be a revolution, revolution because capitalism is exploitation of the oppressed, the, the oppressed masses, the people who are the unders, the 95% is versus the 5%. Um, so what we had in, say, the the early 20th century is we have this result where communism came and did take root in a lot of countries, but as a result, capitalism didn't fall. You know, we still actually had capitalism by and large existing in a lot of countries. There were countries that actually endorsed those ideas wholesale. We saw Stalinist Russia, you know, a uh, pupil of Lenin, Lenin himself, a pupil of Marx. We saw, you know, our communist China. We've seen these countries, um, rise and you know fall in some cases as well but what we had is a whole bunch of marxists who saw that capitalism did not end and so what came as a result was this idea of cultural marxism which was the effort to seek to explain why capitalism didn't fall mm. and so you had um speak uh, a whole bunch of scholars um you know loosely derrida um, Michael Foucault, um, more explicitly, um, I want to say Herbert Marcuse, I think his name is, talking about ideas like repressive tolerance. Um, they got associated with this school called the Frankfurt School, which was um, basically a left-leaning uh, school of Marxists, school of uh, left-leaning ideology. It was based for a time in Switzerland. Um, and then when nazi germany actually you know forced these people to flee with their lives they um made refuge in america and were in new york for a time and then eventually found a home within columbia university but it's these ideas these cultural marxists um they started to develop these ideas of what we now know to be critical theory mm. and critical theory isn't just like one idea by itself uh it's basically this idea that actually i'll quote wikipedia here for a second um it's an approach to social philosophy that focuses on reflective assessment and critique of society and culture in order to reveal and challenge power structures with origins in sociology and literary criticism that's a little bit of your uh derrida who was the father of deconstructionism. It argues that societal problems are influenced and created by more by societal structures and cultural assumptions than by individual and psychological factors. Where you can see like, you know, that's a Marxist idea of like the one versus the many. We favor towards more of the, the idea of the many as opposed to the one. You know, we, we favor the idea of group identities rather than actually the rights of the individual. Um, that's kind of a leftist uh, train of thought or a mass yeah. of ideas. So in essence, critical theory, which was developed by the Frankfurt School, by these cultural Marxists, it was this idea that in essence, humanity is made up of subgroups that exist to be in conflict with each other. Like, by definition, that's what humanity is. Mm. And I think, like, even there, you can kind of see where some of the problems of such an idea. You're saying by definition, in essence, humans are made to be in conflict with each other. 
and it's always about a vying for power. It's always about to kind of actually come up over the top of, or, you know, there's embedded within that. There's not an idea of naturally trying to find unity or trying to find actually uh, cohesion or uniformity or uh, agreeing to disagree. Like critical theory actually gave birth to these ideas that, yeah, we exist to be uh, in combat with one another. Mm. They also birthed in uh, educational circles, um, pedagogically speaking, this idea of the dialectic method, um, which seeks to interrogate society's contradictions. Um, quoting, uh, dialectic or dialectics, also known as the dialectical method, is that basic discourse between two or more people holding different points of view about a subject, but wishing to establish the truth through reason methods of argumentation. It's been like kind of uh, put onto the Socratic method and saying actually, oh, Socrates and the likes of um, Plato's work about like uh, Socrates' life in the Euthyphro and um, like works. That's what the dialectic uh, method is. It's basically we, via discourse, via argument, we come to that idea. And sure, that's where it actually originated, but eventually it was this idea that actually no, we've actually arrived at the right set of ideas. It's this, and anyone who actually doesn't actually hold this particular point of view, well, they're the mm. out. They're the person who actually is... Oh, what's that term that was floated a little while ago? Um, you know, this is the 21st century. Um, you know, your past... Oh, I forget the exact terminology. But, you know, your thinking is old-fashioned or it's traditionalist. It's not suiting the cultural ergonomy. Is this making sense so far? Because uh, yep. yeah, I can explain. I want to explain some of the ideas of critical theory specifically. Um, would you comment anything, my dear co-host? No, um, uh, I think that's, I think you're doing well. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah no, <laughs> you always do. Um, so do you, my friend. So, I mean, one thing, particular conversation will link in the description um is justin briley's podcast unbelievable he hosted mm. a conversation between i want to say their names were razul berry and neil shibby um mm -hmm. they talked about actually is crt critical race theory compatible with the gospel um which i think is pretty related to the discussion we're having here you know is this mm. idea of uh as a christian how do we make sense of some of the things that, oh, I think I agree with this, but, you know, I certainly don't agree with that. Like, how do I connect this with the Christian worldview? Can I support this? Can I advocate this? Do I denounce this? Do I have nothing to do with it? Mm. Yeah, let, let's, let's take a bit of time to unpack some of these ideas. So from the likes of critical theory, we get the idea of like uh, mansplaining or microaggressions or triggering or you know, it's linked with postmodernity and cancel culture. It's linked with the idea of white privilege and victim blaming and cultural hegemony. Like, there's a lot of ideas there, right? But just speaking to a couple of them, um, the cultural hegemony is basically the prevailing ideology that benefits those in power, the oppressors. That is the prevailing ideas. So, like for example. Uh, the cultural hegemony is supported by the man currently in critical theory. And the man is the white, male, heterosexual, cisgender, able-bodied, 
native born person in a particular country mm. and the degree to which you are oppressed is the degree to which you are not these things mm. so if by example you are you know a person of color you're a female you're uh, something within the lgbtqi community you're uh, bisexual let's say you're disabled and you're an immigrant you have several layers of oppression which actually qualify you as being most oppressed you are the person mm. who actually uh, has most to gain and therefore most to say to a society that actually is oppressing you isn't taking into account your uh, point of view which is where we get this idea of two things um intersectionality and standpoint epistemology which i talked mm. a little bit about um uh, do you want to talk to those ideas a little bit more because i think i could give my chance but i've heard you explain a little bit better than i have well um not so much intersectionality but i have done a little bit of looking into standpoint epistemology and mm. This is one of the areas that I believe that um, critical theory uh, has some things right. I, mm. I don't agree entirely that it's uh, that this is something that is accurate, but it, it's mm. the idea that uh, people within a certain group, uh, especially those that are marginalized, mm. uh, people who are in that group are best equipped to speak to that issue or to work with that issue yes. for example were a program uh made to reach out to hispanic people within a specific community yes uh, standpoint epistemology dictates that you cannot do this without hispanic voices in the uh creation of this outreach and most likely uh the um, the execution of the outreach. Mm -hmm. um, so it it's it's a it it makes sense in in a lot of ways uh, mm. because these people have a lived experience of what is happening. Mm -hmm. um, it makes sense for Maori people in New Zealand to be working uh, to be working in social work. Uh, working in um, police work, working in various government roles in which they are working with and helping Māori people to escape the various uh, hardships that uh, statistically Māori are unfortunately overrepresented in. Mm -hmm. um, however, standpoint epistemology dictates that the people helping and working with this must be Māori. Mm -hmm. And I think... The problem here is that it ignores the the fact that humans can have and display empathy. Mm -hmm. uh, while they may not necessarily have that lived experience, they may have lived experience elsewhere mm -hmm. that they can transfer. And, and that's why we have empathy is because we we can't always say, I know exactly what you're what you've been through, but we can say, you know what? that sounds like that's really, really crappy. Mm -hmm. Let's work through this. So what one, one major um, thought I've often had 
in regards to standpoint epistemology is with all of those um, upsides that, that I've brought, um, there is also the, the downside idea that, well, we don't expect uh, oncologists to be riddled with tumors. Mm-hmm. We don't expect uh, cardiovascular um, specialist doctors to be obese uh, and to have heart problems. It, it would be, it, it, it's, it's funny, but it's ridiculous yeah, to yeah. expect that. Yeah. Uh, if anything, most uh, cardiovascular um, doctors are quite fit, mm-hmm. um, quite healthy, may or may not have had a history of cardiovascular health problems however when they are quite fit they're still definitely equipped to be working with people who have heart conditions whether they have one or not Mm -hmm. Um, in the same way Mm. i a white man can definitely work to help those who are um, to help black women or to help uh trans hispanic people mm-hmm. um but obviously i would feel more comfortable calling towards you know working alongside people who have a very similar lived experience mm-hmm. um but it's not necessary uh it's helpful but not necessary and i think that's the big problem with uh standpoint epistemology yeah like i'd like to come back to there's the there's some more inconsistencies that kind of self are self-destructive they actually kind of like implode with within the thinking itself um i'd like Mm -hmm. to come back to that but to the point that you're saying there about standpoint of astrology um so intersectionality is a good segue to that it's basically saying that from your standpoint you have lived experience that other people don't have access to. And the Mm. more layers of oppression you have, um, therefore there are more uh, lived experiences that you have access to that people can't actually understand. Um, Taking one definition, it's an analytical framework for understanding how aspects of a person's social and political identities combine to create different models or different modes of discrimination and privilege. So like with the example I said before, the man being white and male, heterosexual, et cetera, et cetera, to the degree that you aren't these things, you have more to say, you have um, more experience that actually is the antithesis of the current cultural hegemony, and so therefore needs to be listened to if we are to promote meaningful difference, a point of difference that is unlike what we currently have. Like, I, I think to some degree, like, you know, the the school of thinkers in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment actually said this better with just the idea of subjectivity and objectivity, right? Like, mm. you know, you can have objective truths, which are things that we all agree to and we all understand and we all agree, even though that's becoming increasingly harder to say what is true in a post-truth, a mm. post-truth era. And they're subjective true. There are things that you know are true to your experience and I don't have access to them because I haven't lived your life. I haven't walked in your shoes. By a conversation and by a relationship, I can have access to some of that, right? Mm. But some of the thing that's actually linked up with critical theory is post-modernity and the idea that there are no yeah. meta-narratives and that there are no absolutes. 
and one of the first points of like self-destruction is like the lived experience becomes the ultimatum the lived experience is actually it becomes the absolute like if you are more oppressed then you by definition have more of a say what you say is more binding more absolute than someone who is the antithesis of what is the current cultural age what is the zeitgeist as it were hmm. um, well, post-modernity is is self-destructive even before mm-hmm. that point in regards mm-hmm. to saying that there are no absolute truths is an absolute truth claim yes, in and exactly. of itself and um you just fall into a never-ending cycle of mm-hmm. illogicality and irrationality mm-hmm. um but something i, I thought of um that I should add to or uh, add to my points about standpoint epistemology from a, mm-hmm. from a perspective here in New Zealand, um, there are certain cases in which it is legally uh, required mm-hmm. uh, to have a certain level of standpoint, um, a, a standpoint epistemological yes. approach. Uh, and that is in regards uh, to te tiriti or waitangi. We, have uh, laws that govern our nation that require there to be Maori voices mm. within certain uh, local boards and um, within certain uh, government, well, more, more more on a larger scale than on local scale, but there is still a requirement for us to have a Maori voice within our parliament yeah. and within our, our nation. Um, and, that, that, that is the constitution upon which our nation is built, mm. which is a great thing because there, you know, we, uh, we as a nation were built um, with a mixture of colonizers and uh, native Maori people. Mm-hmm. And the treaty was a, was a great way to bring that voice about and to bring uh, an inclusivity of all people um mm-hmm. it may not have been a perfect way but it was definitely a stepping stone mm-hmm. towards that um and yeah that 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 is a case in which i would advocate for uh the merits of standpoint epistemology yes no i'd agree i'd agree to that extent yeah yeah definitely i think um we have some of the problems where where critical theory comes to the point where talking about cultural hegemony to the point that you are not these things, you are preserving the powers that be and the powers that be by definition in critical theory are the oppressors. They are the people that are preserving the, the institutional racism, the institutional sexism, the institutional um, discrimination. Like um, I thought it was really interesting talking about say, uh hearing body bocham and he's talking about actually he's a black conservative and so his voice is not accepted by the blm movement he's talked about as having a black body but not a black voice mm-hmm. right which is which is Old uncle tom argument yeah like they say you know that he's uncle tom or that he's a, a race trader or that he would say um oh what's the other terminology i've i've heard uncle tom race trader yeah very like you know dismissive of what he actually has to say and by extension Mm. you know like it's a post-modernity criticism that actually says 
Um, we don't want to be taught what to think, right? Knowledge mm-hmm. as a construct, knowledge as a social construct is a, a mechanism, a tool of this oppression. So mm-hmm. white rationalism, Western thinking is not welcome and weighing in on the discussions about what is true, mm-hmm. what is right and wrong. Like statistics and data are seen as one example of this. So like, for example, we talk about a very sophisticated issue, like we mentioned earlier in the cast, about um, police brutality. And you could say, mm-hmm. yes, there are instances of this. Yes, but there are also instances of that. And the close down of the conversation comes when uh, the leftist says, well, that's just an example of white oppression because, you know, statistics and mm-hmm. data and science came from uh western rationalism and that's white and that's the cultural hegemony like christianity falls then into this camp christianity and the gospel and christian worldview is seen as a product of the judeo-christian worldview Hmm. culture and civilization that has perpetuated this racism this oppression and so it needs to be silenced and it needs to be done away with um, because it's not valid um coming back a little bit to the idea of like defunding the police because you know there are a couple of things that again where again a christian can affirm the the phrase black lives matter certainly that idea what jason mcrae has popularized um and others have caught on to black lives matter to christ right Mm. um but with this idea um some of the ideas of the movement the actual if you go onto their website and read what they stand for you know they talk about defund the police they talk about being lgbtqi plus affirming they talk about Mm. being against the heteronormative culture um they want to they are against and want to destroy the western prescribed nuclear nuclear family you know Mm. promoting say like you know why can't a polyamorous relationship raise a child why can't you know two men or three men or you know one woman and two men and like why can't that actually raise a family um, and so these are some of the parts that actually, um, Christians have difficulty with actually, if they look at the black matter, uh, the black lives matter movement, they say, well, I can't endorse that because that is against the Christian worldview. Mm. Um, but again, sorry, I lost my train of thought a little bit coming back to the police brutality example. There's a BLM belief that you can't reform an institution from the inside because, by critical theories thoughts you know the white man won't give up his position of power without a struggle um i was watching um i was telling you about this recently caleb i was watching black kkk Klansman recently which is such mm. a brilliant film on this topic and addressing this this polarization of ideologies and thinking and ideas and so on point so poignant but um uh, definitely good in promoting conversation around this, not closing down discussion, right? One, uh, one of the, the leading actresses um, as a character promotes this uh, thinker, Dubois. Um, his name was uh, W.E.B. Dubois, William Edward Bugart uh, Dubois. He was a American sociologist, socialist, historian, civil rights activist, author, writer, editor. He promoted this idea of... Uh, Tunis and the American and the Negro are two warring ideals within one dark body that actually 
critical theory isn't just something abstracted to communities and actually uh, groups. It's actually something even within the oneself, like those two ex ideologies exist in conflict. You know, that's what I was saying about the idea of the black voice, black body, as Vadi Bochum mm -hmm. talks about, that actually one of those has to win out. You know, there's no compromise. There's no finding common ground. It has to be like either this or that. Like it, mm. it makes it very hard to actually welcome conversation on ideology and welcome conversation on finding common ground and unity. Um, Which is ironically a very dualistic and uh, objective approach. Yes. To uh, the thought. Yes, no, exactly. Exactly. Like, I think it's funny, like, um, I heard a few critiques on, have you heard the name Robin D'Angelo? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who's uh, become very popular in the States. And you know, she wrote a book last year, I want to say called White Privilege. And she's- White Fragility? White Fragility. Thank you. White Fragility. Yeah. That's right. Um, and she's become very popular in the States around, you know, educating HR in corporations and organizations, you know, uh, teaching people, I would say from a critical theory worldview, um, yeah. that basically, you know, by default, you, if you're white, you're racist, you know, she's, yeah. she's talking about the idea of, um, you know, these myths of, of, of color, like, you know, um, when you say like, uh, you're white, you're outside of race or, you know, as a white person, I don't see color or, you know, I have black friends, therefore I'm not racist or race mm. has nothing to do about it. It's about class or focusing on how race divides us. Um, these, these are actually, these are the myths that are perpetuated and actually stop conversation around these ideas. But it is coming very much from, a, from an assumption that actually, if you are this, again, standpoint epistemology, if you are this, then by default, you you have to just listen. You just have to shut up, stand back, and actually you don't necessarily have an opinion on this or one that's actually worth being considered or weighing in on the conversation. Mm. Which, like, you know, to a degree of humility, yes. Like, listen to what other people have to say, especially the lived experiences. Have sympathy, have compassion, be like Christ in that instance. Mm. But neither do we say that actually... Should be controversial and quote Shapiro here, like uh, facts don't care about your feelings, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> at at um, times, it's very accurate, a very true statement. Yeah, not at all times, not yeah. at all times, not at all times. Um, so I don't get cancelled. <laughs> it's. I think it's ironic that the black conservative voice is being silenced. Like, um, I saw a PragerU video um, from a guy called Talib Starks, and he talked about the five biggest issues facing blacks in America is mm. this idea of victim mentality. It's a lack of diversity of opinion and discussion, which we've talked at length about here. Um, it's this idea of urban terrorism. It's the proliferation of baby mamas uh, and the allegiance to black uh, policy uh, to black progressive policies. Mm. And I'll link the video in description because he describes it a lot better than I can, but you know, any one of those ideas is like, right, close down of discussion. We're not going to dialogue on this anymore because you are, you have actually incarnated the, the cultural ergonomy. 
you are racist internally. You've internalized racism. <laughs> you yeah. are a product of the keep culture that is actually keeping us oppressed, right? Mm. Um, and yeah, like uh, it's, it's, it's. I can't help but think it's funny that you got Robin D'Angelo as a white woman who's actually telling us actually, you know, <laughs> how to do race and how to view race, right? Um, but that's where probably where they would argue that intersectionality plays a plays a role in there in terms of uh being female true i mean i've heard a lot of people say um a lot of um you know people of color find issue with d'angelo's thinking because the inversion of as a white you are racist is as a black you are oppressed you know or as a person Mm. of color as a bipoc you know you are you are oppressed and people find that offensive because it's like well i'm not oppressed like i'm actually i'm this i have plenty of opportunity i I'm not going to take handouts. I find that racist if I'm given like, you know, paternalistic favoritism. Um, Mm. Yeah. Like, especially this idea of identities. Like I like what this guy, this YouTuber actually was working through the book as like kind of a book review. He made this point that identities aren't monolithic. You know, it's like, you're not just this concrete state. You're just this, right? Um. Mm. If what Jason McRae had to say about, you know, why people can't BLM, support BLM as a movement has anything to weigh in about this. Um, he said quite, <laughs> you know, straw man argumentatively, but poignantly, it's like, what's to stop Donald Trump from actually proclaiming that he is the first female black president tomorrow? <laughs> like, yeah, and, and there, were, there, were, there, there, there were a few... Um... Babylon B articles yeah. making similar jokes about, yeah. you know, uh, in in a haste, Trump declares himself as first black female president before <laughs> Kamala Harris can, you know. Um, well, like the irony is like, yeah, it's like if you're speaking in absolutes and you're actually saying what I actually feel in my heart and mind I am is not only binding, this is what Jason McRae said, is not only binding on me like what i feel is the determinant of what's true it's also binding on you caleb like you know what i feel concerning myself is also you have to believe that so until i actually identify as that like what's to say that i'm not the oppressed what's to say that i'm not actually the victim of oppression because i could well be disabled you don't know I, Mm. i i could well be you know like um not cisgender i could well be um hispanic you don't know i'm identifying mm. as that you know so therefore that's where actually you know some of the lgbtqi community find real issue with um biological essentialism because it's saying it's like well if your body is dictating that you're this you know like you are therefore closing down like my personhood you are therefore actually silencing my uh, my lived reality, my lived experience, and therefore that's oppressive. Mm. But like the irony is, like on the inverse of that, like what's to say that I can't say at any point that I am this, I identify as this, that um, I am this by extension. Mm. So it's like, yeah, I think it's it's it is a bit self-destructive. It begins to be actually, it doesn't actually make sense upon examination. It starts to kind of mm. self-destruct within itself. Yeah. Mm. but it does because it's it's proposing a a movement of actually anything from the western civilization is um dated 
um, and actually is non-absolute, non-binding. But anything that's said within this movement, within a wider, um, within a wider theme of cultural Marxism, that is what is actually true. That is what is actually accurate. Yeah. Um, so, hmm. w- with all these things in mind, uh, what would you say uh, should be the, I guess, Christian response? What What would be some, I guess, standpoint? Mm. Uh, standpoint epistemology. No. Um, what would be some <laughs> standpoint? I guess pillars uh, mm-hmm. that we should focus on to uh, relate to this. Um, not necessarily uh, combat, but in some cases, yes, combat these ideals. But um, I guess to dialogue with people and to, uh, I guess, interact with these ideas. What, what would you say is the Christian response to this or should be the Christian response? Yeah, I would echo again this idea of Christians, I think, are feeling unsure of where to stand on this issue for justice. You know, Romans 12 verse 15 says, you know, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. And if there are mm. successes on the back of actually what BLM is doing, that actually uh, deconstructs and actually uh, reconstructs you know, an alternative to some of the institutional racism that has been experienced, I think that's a good thing, right? Christians should advocate mm. for that and should Christians should actually we should rejoice with them. We should mourn for the loss of black lives. We should mourn for the loss of blue lives for that matter. You know, if the instances are unjust and the occasions are unfair and, uh, you know, police have been murdered by result of rioting and and as a result of uh, excessive force on the case of the, the protesters, right? But... I think we also need to consider that actually scripture shows that actually both Old Testament and New Testament, God is not against uh, justice. God is not actually against, uh, or I should say God is against the oppressor using his position to benefit himself and those who are he favors. And God is for the cause of the oppressed people are actually... Uh, hmm as a result of systemic sin in systems, yeah. that's the key problem, right? Systemic sins that individuals and groups of people are all prone to. He is for those people who are oppressed by the consequences of sin. No, not all people are guilty of that as cultural hegemony would actually suggest, but we mm. certainly are the sufferers of that. We certainly are the victims of sin in systems. So it's like cultural hegemony has got some of the idea, but not all of it, right? Mm. If you read throughout the wisdom literature, like I said before, that keeps us accountable. I was reminded of actually um, in preparing for this podcast, John Foreman, who was the lead singer of um, Switchfoot. Mm. uh, He's done his own album and he's got like a great series of, uh, um, he does a great um, series of uh, four CDs, um, winter, summer, fall uh, and spring. And on one of the albums, um, he has a song called Instead of a Show, which is all quoting from Amos chapter 5, the Old Testament prophet. And so you get in like verse uh, 12, there's this idea um, in Amos 12. He's basically talking how Israel's day of reckoning is coming. 
and as well as listing the course of sins and amongst that list which actually Amos speaking for the Lord mentions is um, social injustice for I know verse 12 for I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins there are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts um, verse 21 this is the what John Foreman sings about in that song I hate all your show Verse 21, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Mm. So this is where actually God is saying to Christians by extension, listen like you know if if you're being religious if you're like going to church every sunday doing a prayer at dinner but you're neglecting the matters of actually justice if you're neglecting care for your neighbor love for your neighbor for the oppressed for the sojourner for the widow for the orphan for the least of our society the people most in need then you are neglecting the heart of the royal law of god you're forgetting, mm. you know, um, love God with all your everything and love your neighbor as yourself. The summation of the all of the Torah, right? Um, yeah. And you you have by extension this idea that actually in Leviticus 19, you know, when God's actually setting up the Israelite nation using Moses as actually the prophet to proclaim to the people as well. He asks for Israel to be a, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They were supposed to represent God to the world and represent the world to God. They were supposed to take on that role as a whole nation to actually, what does, yes, spirituality, how do we actually link the divine to the worldly, the otherwise mundane, but actually how does, the mundane reflect the divine how do we actually show justice show mercy um how do we walk humbly with our god in our day-to-day right the wisdom literature of scripture was actually a call to hey whatever you do you better know you have to give an account to a god at the end of the day who will judge us mm-hmm. for all of our actions ecclesiastes 12 finishes with that here is the sum of everything that's been taught you know fear god and keep his commandments every mm. secret act will be called into account right um that's for the oppressor and the oppressed they are mm. under that same um obligation before god but we we also see i know and i know i'm telling taking a while to actually unpack this forgive me my friend um <laughs> we also see like this is consistent in the new testament as well i'm reminded of actually a passage that is otherwise referred to as the missio day or the mission of God. Um, when Jesus is rejected in Nazareth, this is quoted in Luke chapter four, he unrolls a certain section in the prophet Isaiah, um, a certain section of um, that particular book. And he quotes words regarding himself. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed 
and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Different translations actually say the year of Jubilee. Um, so right there again, you have this idea that actually God in that moment, Jesus being the representation of God on earth, actually proclaim, came to proclaim the gospel, the way to know God, spiritual uh, spirituality of consequence, but also to rectify social justice issues. Both were actually in the mission of God when actually Christ came to earth. Um, mm. James 5, you know, you actually, James, the brother of Jesus, who became the leader of the early church, he's taking the rich in churches to task and holding them accountable for their actions of oppression. It's very consistent with yeah. a, you know, Torah message. Um, I'm reminded of Matthew 12, verse 18. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I shall put my spirit upon him and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. Mm. You know, here we have an idea. It's a reference to Jesus about his role was not just to the Israelites, but also to the whole world. You know, yeah. he, he has, again, a call to social justice in that instance. And so all this to say, we actually see God, as revealed by the Christian gospel, is not against social justice. Mm. Maybe in the way it's been popularized and represented in our current day and age, yes. Yeah. Um, but I think, like, as a result of cultural Marxism and critical theory in the popular sphere, these important issues of injustice get closed down in conversation unless you have the valid, authentic perspective and are entitled to a voice. And as a result, these things don't get addressed in our systems. Like they continue, which plays into confirmation bias, but also perpetuates inequity. You know, issues that need addressing, need talking about uh, from both sides of the aisle don't get talked about. It's like, no, you don't actually have the right perspective. So you actually don't get to speak. You know, you don't have intersectionality. You don't have layers of oppression. So you actually don't get to speak. I think Christians here, you we need to not avoid, but we need to engage. Yeah. Uh, not all minorities or oppressed peoples believe every part of this. Like, and so I think that's we as Christians, we need to not get into fundamentalist thinking and actually think everyone who is not a Christian is a critical theorist. The whole world is this. Everyone just believes yeah. this wholesale. It's like, no, nah, no, there's little bits and pieces where they'll be like, just like any of us. They're thinking, yeah, I believe some of this, but I don't believe some of that. Yeah. Like, and, like and not only that, but also not all um, BLM supporters yes. are critical theorists or not yes. all people who support aspects of critical theory yes. support it as in its entirety. And um, I think that was highlighted quite, uh, quite well um, in the debate that you've mentioned mm. or the, the discussion that you've mentioned earlier uh, on Justin Briley's show between mm. um, who was it again? Uh, Chevy and uh, Berry. Rizal. Yeah. Yeah. Rizal Berry. And yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it Rizal was talking about it saying, I'm, I'm not critical theory's biggest fan. In fact, I've written against how terrible it is. However, mm. Mm -hmm. I am supporting certain aspects of it mm -hmm. uh, in terms of how we as Christians can get behind, not necessarily critical theory, but behind social justice movements that, uh, that encompass 
uh, certain aspects of critical theory. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I mean, we, Sorry, we also serve a God that not only, as you've pointed out, you know, supports justice for his people, but, uh, and, and from his people, but even within the spiritual realm in, in Psalm 82, uh, God takes a seat in the, in the council, mm-hmm. um, of, in, in the heavenly council, um, and he says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Mm-hmm. Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Maintain the, the right of the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver mm-hmm. them from the hand of the wicked. Mm-hmm. So there's a, an understanding here that God expects this not just from us as humans, but he expects it from all creation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um from all of his creation so it, it's clearly as you say something that is important to to god's heart mm. and to his mission well i think it, it touches on that idea that you know as christians you know re, i read william lane craig's book or have started to i should say read his book on guard and he's got a much longer book called reasonable faith but he talks mm. about the idea of defensive apologetics and offensive apologetics yeah um so the idea that actually no uh the first part of this podcast we've talked a lot about offensive apologetics what is you know cannot be abided by in terms of critical theory or cultural marxism but defensive Mm. apologetics actually has to articulate uh, a more hopeful perspective the gospel Mm. has to actually frame a more hopeful a more redemptive a more um idealistic a more winsome perspective of what is humanity and actually what is what is race? You know, what does actually uh, unity look like along these lines, right? Um, mm. I think like the irony is that, that the kind of deep heart change that these advocates, these advocates, like the likes of Robin D'Angelo um, desire regarding your heart towards oppressed people and racism by extension, that can mm. only come from Jesus. That kind of transformation yeah. can only come from God, right? Yeah. Um, and I think like, there's a lot of actually, again, like as a Christian, we can get on board with and actually agree with, right? Um, mm. Well, Christians should not have a problem with affirming Black Lives Matter as a phrase, right? Um, I One of the things that came up in that, that talk with Neil Chevy and Razul Berry, something I wasn't aware of is that race actually is a social construct, right? These papal bulls um, mm. were written in the 16th century, for basically the the Western civilization to come in, conquest, uh, rape, pillage, destroy, ransack uh, these villages in these contexts to actually forward the cause of civilization and the gospel. You know, they are the kingdom, and they therefore have a a moral license to do wicked things. And so, mm. race was actually invented as a concept to actually say like, well, these people are less the image of God. They don't image God as well as we do. So therefore we actually have a, a divine right to actually act on God's behalf in this instance, like a, an abhorrent doctrine and not, not in any way consistent with actually what scripture teaches us that all are made in the image of God and all actually mm. bear that mark of divinity. Right. Yeah. But I think, further like inversely christians we need to be discerning about what they pick up and what they advocate what we advocate 
I've heard a lot of Christians are advocating implicitly and without actually being aware of it, this idea of standpoint epistemology and not the good aspects of it. Right. Mm. So like even the likes of like um, Dr. John Piper um, on his Ask John podcast, he was talking about um, the question, should Christians um, support Black Lives Matter? And he tweeted out when he came aware of it, looking at the Black Lives Matter website, he tweeted out the quotes about, um, you know, heteronormativity and um, affirming LGBTQI+. And he puts that out there. And then he had a conference with um, a bunch of other reformed pastors in the States. And this particular African-American pastor actually called him to account and said, like, hey, listen, that wasn't helpful just putting that out there without context. And mm. John descri describes his process of deferring to the African-American preacher because he's saying, like, you know, uh, basically lived experience, you know, basically, mm. oh, listen, you know, you're not qualifying what you're actually saying, so that's not actually helpful. Like, to a degree, I'm like, mm, I'm of two minds about that because it's like, you know, mm. should actually, actually Christians and John Piper and the position that he has and the way that people actually do look to him and his platform as to give some kind of guidance and pastoral care and that an insight if that's actually promoted in the wider cause of Black Lives Matter, like, uh, mm. shouldn't that then be brought to attention of some of those people? Like, you know, even if it is in isolation, sure. But what we're trying to say here again is like, actually, not all proponents of the Black Lives Matter uh, cause are actually endorse everything about the movement. And I think Christians mm. would be discerning actually, well, are there aspects we agree with? Yes, that there is oppression that's happening, that there's no systemic racism. You know, what about the fact that there's unquantified, unreported corruption and crime? Um, yeah. What about the fact that actually the justice, penal and police systems are connected but distinct and that they do interact with each other and decisions made in one sector do influence the others? You know, like they're raising worthwhile points, right? We need to be discerning and actually not dismissive of the fact that actually there might be some things that actually as a Christian, we can't agree with and we can't abide. We've got to mm. know where our points of difference are. And I think the more we actually have those conversations rather than just closing down because it doesn't fit the cultural narrative, I don't think that's unhelpful. I think that's actually yeah. constructive to continue keep, to keep talking about it. Christians yeah. should be against all instances of injustice and sin, but that doesn't mean we should actually not test the spirits and actually know what the signs of the times are know what the thinking of our age is mm. Mm. yeah cool well i think we've um probably covered quite a lot there um exhausted and uh, yeah I, I think we've done a good job to you, you specifically have done a good job to cover quite a lot of things in the time that we've had um thanks bro and and yeah, for all of the listeners out there, um, for the things we've discussed, we'll be uh, putting some uh, references in the description uh, on YouTube and various other platforms that we'll be releasing this on. Yeah, so check check the description if there's anything that uh, that you wanted a reference to um, that we have not linked. Uh, give us a comment on YouTube or send us a message elsewhere. Mm. and uh we'll do our best to remedy that um in the meantime uh 
can I pray for us as we close up in conversation? I think that'd be great, man. May I say one thing more before we do as well? Like certainly we want to be clear as well that like we do not approach issues like this without sensitivity. A big part of actually why we've actually wanted to start this podcast is acknowledging with humility, you know, at the point of age that we are, we know that there's a lot we don't know. And we also know that there is a lot we don't know that we don't know. <laughs> um, and I think like this is actually, like for me, researching to do this, this particular cast, knowing that this is an important topic, I wanted to do a good job. I hope I have for everyone listening. Mm. Um, I know Caleb has in his role of actually uh, offering that, that, counter perspective and actually giving some some thought-provoking questions we've wanted to actually develop ourselves as we worshipfully follow christ but also seek to produce something that actually challenges you to do the same and so i do want to give or at least um ask my lord in that regard the grace to actually say you know we might change on some of our stances on some of these perspectives um, we definitely want the conversation to keep going. We definitely want to actually present a perspective that is unifying and holistic and affirming. And we want to be sensitive to those um, people that are oppressed in the world, just as our Lord was to them, knowing that actually sin is reality in this world. But we also want to give a hope that actually is better than what is currently being presented by the effects of this movement and the mm. proponents of this movement. That I think the gospel and Christian worldview and who is King Jesus actually offers something that's better, more hope-driven, more love and faith-affirming, that actually gives us a better way in which to stand a better way in which to face life a better way in which to actually stand by our brother love our brother stand for the brokenhearted and the downcast and the oppressed mm. um and that is consistent with the world rationally and is consistent with actually how our lord has ordered and ordained this world to be acknowledging that it so isn't in so many regards with regards to the uh the effects of the fall and sin specifically. And so, yeah, we, we want to actually say like, uh, we weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn, but we do want to rejoice with those who rejoice. And hopefully this can joyfully be received as something that will actually edify you. It's certainly done that for me. And it's certainly done that for yeah. us, I think by extension. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Those are some good words. Thanks brother. Cool. So, uh, Lord God, we thank you for this, uh, this time we've had, this discussion we've had. Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to have this discussion without fear of uh, repercussions within our criminal, criminal justice system, Lord. We thank you that you've placed us in a country that allows us to do so. God, we pray for the listeners today that if they take anything out of what we've said today, it is that you, Lord, 
are a lover of justice, grace, and mercy. You are justice, grace, and mercy, Lord. And that without you, this is all fruitless and this is all meaningless. So, Lord, we we pray for ourselves and for for our listeners that they may be able to look uh, at these issues not only necessarily with a fresh perspective, but with a perspective that is enriched and enhanced by your gospel. Lord, we pray for these things and we pray that we may continue to see movements uh, closer to your kingdom, Lord, mm. as we go along. May your kingdom be uh, be at the center of all that we do. May your will be done in and through us. We pray these things in the holy, mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Cool. Thanks, bro. Thanks, bro. Um, thanks, audience. See you again soon.